My name is Julia and you're listening to Paper Cuts. Hey Julia, thank you so much for being uh, on the program again. Um, uh, yeah, and for everyone listening, uh, to give some brief introductions, Julia Arredondo is now in Maine, uh, was just in Chicago and was left there. So really excited to be talking to you about all the things that have been happening. And uh, Jennifer Lillis is also joining us from Virginia. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Lillis, the co-producer of Paper Cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, Julia, thank you so much for making some time here at the end of the day uh, to talk to us. And I am really excited to see your new studio behind you uh, in Maine. Can you tell us where you're at and what's happening? Sure thing. I am currently in Waterville, Maine. Um, this is my second week at this pretty awesome residency. Um, it's a newly established residency with the Lender Institute at Colby College. Oh. Um, here till the end of December. I'm getting paid darn well for being an artist. It's like, it's pretty much a dream come true. I get this huge studio. The only catch, in my opinion, is that I have housemates. I'm such a freaking hermit. Like, I live alone. I got to joke with other people. It's like, ugh. You know? Oh, no. <laughs> dirty bathrooms, dirty kitchens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff like that. But try not to be too tense about it. It's a beautiful thing to cohabitate. Well, it's amazing that you, that you are set up with this beautiful studio space and you're there for like a good chunk of time to really settle down into the work. Yeah, yeah, they're paying me very well. I get this huge studio. I get access to a prestigious institution. And I was thinking a little earlier, like I fetishize college campuses. Like I'm such a like fetishist. I just like, it's like I can feel people thinking. I can feel inner discourse and dialogue. I'm such a sucker for colleges, even though I know that there's like, darker, grittier, yuckier colonizer things happening. Like I still yeah. love college campuses. Well, I mean, I guess like, do you, would you say that you do find the academic setting to be kind of energizing to you? I do, I do. It's like, there's a magnetic push and pull. Um, I feel like academic settings are they're very liberating for me. They are like so much has been possible in those settings that weren't a part of my like natural upbringing, you know, just like yeah. academic have really allowed me to expand my boundaries in special ways. Yeah. So are you like involved with the students somehow? Are you kind of like, like what kind of like what's the structure of the residency? It's pretty open-ended here, um, but I am encouraged to like engage with the student body. I'm taking a class, but um, I'm supposed to be uh, starting my bibliomancy residency here um, while I'm I'm on campus for the next couple months. So I'm really curious to know how this like academic setting up here and sort of rural-ish Maine is going to respond to like the supernatural approach to the libraries and archives. I don't know. I hope they don't burn me at the stake. Um, but I will be doing my bibliomancy. I'll be giving some workshops on zine making. Zines, it seems like the students are really interested in zines. Um, so that's really exciting. And that'll sort of, I'm gonna let, I'm trying to make some space for this location to influence me. I'm just not trying to like regiment every day. Um, and from what I can tell is that it seems like the zine and collage aspects of my practice are really gonna take precedence here. That's awesome. And. So last time we were able to speak on the record, 
Sorry, I'm. You probably hear some street traffic behind me, or but um, last time we were able to talk, I did tell you just how much I I love that phrase bibliomancy and how evocative it is of what the practice can be and can be become becoming. And I was wondering if you can just like talk a little bit about what bibliomancy is and how you incorporate it into your work. Absolutely. Um, and really quickly, I have a lisp this time around because I, I just got Invisalign. So I don't know if you can hear it, but it's no. the Invisalign. It's not like any weird, you know, not that lisps are weird, but I generally don't have a lisp. I will for the next couple of years though. Um, okay, so bibliomancy yeah. um, is the use of books as tools for divination. Um, and I think I'm interested in the spiritual, I'm interested in the otherworldly. Um, and this is like my divinatory method, the, the method that I'm currently exploring, the method that I feel most close to. Um, and when I talk about divination, I don't necessarily mean foreseeing the future, but mostly like taking a deeper look into the present, like really making space to, to pick apart like what's actually going on around me at this very moment. I have a hard time being in a present. I live very much in the future. Like I'm a planner, I'm always on coffee, like I'm going hundred miles an hour. So anything that helps me sort of ground myself, take a minute to reflect on the present is, is, is what I favor. Um, and so I use books uh, to engage with others and like exploring their present situations, just sort of whatever concerns, whatever interests they bring to the table, we, we look into that critically using books in a magical sort of way. And you'll be doing that in the library space there. Yes, in the fine arts library. They have the special collections, which I will probably get to pull from. Oh, um, yeah, but I'll be spending time in the library this week sort of finding the books that, that I'll be using for my uh, bibliomancy sessions. Every archive lends itself to different books that I use. So I'm excited to find the ones. Um, that I'll be using this time around. You go through and like pre-select the books and then kind of go through the process. And then um, I know you're talking about kind of having people bring things to the table, right? Which is kind of something you get from any type of reading. And so um, is that kind of a like dialogue with do they also bring the books too? Or is it kind of like you're doing the readings from the book that you selected? That's a great um, point to bring up. I usually pre-select the books, but if they want to bring something, they're more than welcome to. Um, I do like, I believe that the, in library settings, in bookstore settings, I believe that the book chooses you. Like, I, I do believe that like the books find you, right? Like you may go in with an idea of what you want, but you're probably gonna leave with something else. Um, and that's how I approach choosing like my books or my tools, right? Is I sort of feel out the archive, feel out the collection. I go in with a general idea, right? I'll, I'll write down like proverb as like type in proverb in the catalog and see what comes up, check out all the books that are available or I'll, I'll type in uh, magic, witch, you know, like witchcraft, I don't know. Like it's a series of words, but most collections have an emphasis. And I guess it all depends on the libraries um, who have cultivated the collection. Um, each library's got a personality. Each arch archive has a personality and a focus. And so I really try to pay attention to that wherever I'm at. It's kind of amazing because the process one does a great job of, as you said, like grounding you in the present moment and like really tethering you to that space as well as allowing for your, uh, the people that you're working with to have that same uh, feeling. But I'm also interested in the like 
reverse act of it being a way to further explore the archive and see what's going on with the archive through this really interesting subset that you're pulling down into it or into your practice? Absolutely. You know, like, like I said, I have a hard time being present. And so these, like, these tools that I use to like sort of guide and help others are very much tools that I use for myself. Yeah. Right. And being present in the collection, trying to let the collection talk to me is so important. Otherwise I'm just going to be on my head and my phone in some space that doesn't exist, you know, in some physical space that doesn't exist. And I find myself getting lost in that more and more. So I'm excited to get back into this bibliomancy practice so that I can, you know, physically be somewhere, you know, it, it's a really cool practice. That's very present. And, and um, I'm excited to do it for others, but I'm just excited to be present again in my physical body. It's so wild how much I don't exist there every day. And it's amazing for you to be able to charge that space that is still so new to you in that way. Like you're new to the university, you're new to this part of Maine. And like later, I'll be really curious to hear you talk about how this is different than when you did this in Chicago, which was a city that you had been in for quite some time. Absolutely. And I mean, the setup's going to be different everywhere I go because Bibliomancy as a residency project, which is how I lead it, is site specific, right? It's going to change from site to site. In Chicago, I had a designated office that I could close up and leave set up every day. Here, I'm going to have a room that I can work out of but it's not like my personal space to lock up every night. I'm going to have to set up, break down every time I, I do a session. So yeah. my setup here is going to be more transient. It's just, it's going to be less temp or less permanent. It's going to have definitely a more transient. Gypsy is not the correct term, but I'm going to feel like a traveling roadshow here. I, have, <laughs> I really feel like that's the way it's going to feel. Well, I do like the idea of you rolling up to the library and having like this <laughs> ritual of unloading your magic bag full of magic books <laughs> and yeah, like I'm... waiting for the students to show up. Yeah, I've got my fringe tablecloth, you know, like there's even a record player in the room here. So I have to get, you know, go through the record collection and pick the right record to set the mood, figure out the lighting. There's a dimmer in the room, which is really great. Um, so it's going to take me a second, not only to navigate the archive and pick my books, but to to figure out the setting, to cultivate the mood, and then welcome the public in. It, and it takes a couple tries, really. It takes me a minute to get used to using these new books and interacting with these new people who have a totally different way of uh, like a different, not different personas, but I'm up here on the East Coast and like the Northeast Coast. People are different than they are in Chicago, right? Yeah. Like maybe more reserved. I don't know, maybe more curious. We'll see. Um. You mentioned also getting more into collage and zine work while you're there or wanting to. Um, and I'm curious if you're going to be using the archives there in the libraries to also source the imagery for your collage work or, or do you have your eyes set on other sources? So I actually, so I, I just left Chicago. Like I packed up my home, left it, got some stuff in storage, but I packed up all the remnants of my past zines. I even... I shut down Vice Versa Press, I shut down Put On Data Press, donated the Vice Versa Press archive to the Decker Library in Baltimore. So that is gone, right? My archive is gone. I'm in the process of negotiating um, the, um, with the library acquiring the Put On Data Press archive. But I have all this ephemera left over from past scene making experiments. 
So I've got a table laid out with just like images and images and images, all these remnants, all these Xerox remnants. That's what I'm currently making my collages out of. I'm trying to get rid of this archive that I'm carrying around so that I can work in the archives that I, I'm trying to be, you know, trying to be more present with what I cultivate in my image making to be site specific. Oh man, I feel like that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I want to work with more of the archive materials, but I'm trying to get rid of all this stuff and use up all the materials that I have backlogged over years and years of scene making. Um, what, did you feel like this was like a really necessary shift for you to be leaving Chicago, like processing all this material, putting it out into the world in a different way to these other archives? Like, and also congratulations on the, the Decker Library. That's great that they're going to be holding the vice, for, um, the vice versa press archives. Um, but it's I, coming to new space, making room for so much new information to come through. Um, I feel like you just must be like supercharged right now to be making things. Yeah, I am. I am because I, I've gotten rid of so much, you know. Um, and I did feel like it was necessary. Um, I feel like I have almost a romantic relationships with every city that I live in. And this Chicago relationship, I like to consider my relationship with Chicago separated, like we're in that separated before we get divorced <laughs> mode. Um, it's been tumultuous, but it was time. I was there for six years. That's like usually the amount of time that I spend long-term in cities and that it was time. It was just time. And what, what brought you to Chicago when you moved there? A residency at Spudnik Press. Yeah, and you got... I feel like you very quickly uh, got very involved in the printmaking and zine community in Chicago. What was it like? Oh, yeah. oh the residency at Spenek was so wonderful. Like, I don't think I could do the residency now, right? Like, I was like 28 when I moved to Chicago. They gave me 200 bucks. Like, all Sh all Spenek Press did was say, "Hey, you can you can make stuff for for six months. We'll give you 200 bucks." And I was living in Oklahoma with my mom and I was like, anything to get the hell out of here, right? Not that living with my mom's great, but it's like rural Oklahoma. We were both were like, what the hell did we just do? Um, so I just needed a reason, right? I just needed a reason to move back to the city. Um, and I don't think I could do that now. If someone offered me 200 bucks to move across the country, I'd be like, are you out of your mind? I need a thousand at least, you know? Um, it was when great. When that opportunity though. comes at the right time, then that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's like this London Institute residency, perfect timing, really. Like it worked out, I, and it gave me the reason to leave Chicago, give me another home, and they set me up though, right? Not two hundred dollars. I was also living in a convent when I moved to Chicago, <laughs> so like you know, I'm getting older, right? Like I'm getting older. The things that I need, my lifestyle is different, right? I, I am really not in the place to live in a convent again, although I can. Right, I, I I could do it again. It's not like I'm seeing anybody. Um, but Spanish Press was great. I had 24 access to this print space, and I just there's nothing like printing alone in the middle of the night in this warehouse space. Yeah. It's the most it's it's pure magic to me, just to like be image making and being in this ritual of printing and this on wood floors listening to Jeff Buckley in the middle of the night. You know it was. There was nothing like it. They will never. I, I don't know if I'll ever have that experience again. But it was. It was such a. It was so great. I'm so grateful to Spenic Press for that. Um, 
like I said, the convent experience, they had a curfew at 9 p.m. So Spendnik would let me sleep on their couch. You know, like it was incredible that that experience was so good. How long were you living at the convent for? Three months. Oh, well. Three months. It was awesome. The 200 bucks a month, all meals included. Like, come on. Oh, well. it's, it's such a hard deal to pass up. I mean, really just, like, like, sorry jennifer go ahead no i'm just like really curious with this kind of whole like convent setup right and so um kind of like i also kind of imagine like the sound of music convents right where it's kind of like <laughs> like everyone's kind of like trusting their like habits and stuff like that and so um how involved i know you're kind of talking about like being in the spaces that you're in now right so kind of what was it like being in that space kind of like how you work through your process and your practice um that's the second time I've lived in a convent. So, oh. yeah. But it, it was great. You know, I'm not Catholic. It was an Episcopalian convent. I'm not Episcopalian either. But it was great. I loved it. I get along with people. I'm fine with rules. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a chaotic individual. So when rules are introduced into my life, I'm like, heck yeah, please give me structure. Um, I'm friendly. You know, it was great. Mother Superior was really, you know, she could be harsh, but we got along. You know, we, we just got along and uh, we had a good relationship. I even produced a publication with one of the nuns, Sister Barbara, while I was there. Um, she wanted to make something for Christmas to hand out to people in our parish. Um, and we did that, you know, we, I, like one day a week I would cook. I would just like order pizza <laughs> for the nuns. And it was fun. And, and sometimes I would be able to take, um, I would partake in like the, evening comp lines, you know, do some of the prayers. And I'm like super spiritual too. So I'm like, prayers, heck yeah, let's do it. Um, it was it was fun. It wasn't like the sound of music, but I grew up watching the sound of music. And that's funny, I never thought about like maybe that's why I'm so comfortable in convent setting. <laughs> <laughs> so much. My mom loved that movie. Yeah, didn't we all? But um yeah, because I know kind of you were talking earlier about your experience in Maine and kind of really picking up on the energies of kind of like being in this landscape of academia and kind of this like sense of curiosity where kind of that's why I was asking kind of like how does that energy shift from a very spiritual location and very spiritual landscape where like it's a very, it's a blessed space right versus an academic like an academic setting where kind of like you have this like different type of dialogue happening right with like more kind of like like well I, I would assume where it's like a place of kind of like always being encouraged to ask questions right kind of like well, at least like in my education, like asking questions, like challenging where these answers are coming from, instead of just kind of like having that faith that what this is like what you're being taught is what is the word, right? Damn, that's complex. You're right. I couldn't ask questions at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, but like in a place where you are now, like you're you're you're, you're kind of in a place where like you can kind of really challenge these institutions and kind of like and really seeing their root, like their like root kind of like, intention be based off of their archive, right? Yeah. Because like they're like they're kind of like they're kind of collecting these things with the intention of kind of like arc like this idea of archiving, right? They're kind of like kind of really like keeping their source of knowledge, kind of making it a place where everyone who's actually involved in that institution can go to this place, right? I thought it was really interesting. No, I, I mean, rant. <laughs> it's a great point to bring up, right? Like who do archives collect for? You know, and it's not like the student body is running it every day seeking knowledge. I mean, they are to some extent, but it's not like they're running the collection being like, please show me a new book, right? And and yeah, the relevancy of archives is sort of, I think, always being discussed, especially now because 
people are trying to introduce like new ways of, of gaining interest in these spaces. And that's one of the reasons that the libraries and librarians are so excited about my bibliomancy projects because they're like anything to get students in here. But yeah, like just getting creative with ways to bring the student body into the space because everything's available online now, right? Like students don't even need to set foot in the archives, but the archives are so precious. They're so, and, and they are almost spiritual spaces to me. Like yeah, a library in many ways is not very different to me than like being at an empty church with an open altar. You know, they're just like, Possibilities for reflection are endless. Yeah. So um, when you were in Chicago, Vice Versa Press was already happening then, right? It was. And when did you like, kind of pause Vice Versa Press or close it down? I mean, it's gone. I'm going to say 2021. It's gone now. Like, even yeah. if I wanted to open it up, I couldn't, which is really kind of nice. Um, I would say 2018 was probably the hard stop. I tried to revive it in 2020, but that just didn't happen. Um, but in 2018, 2016 is when I opened up Kurandera Press and then Kurandera Press sort of took off. And then I just felt like there was just so much more interest in Kurandera Press at that time. And like this discourse around contemporary Latinx identity was just like, not that it isn't still like fire and happening, but yeah. it just felt in the marketplace and with all my like artisanal and creative peers, it was just like the place to be. Like I, I wanted to be a part of that conversation and, and it was there, the dialogue was there. It was not just one-sided, it was just so multifaceted. And that's actually, do you mind just like further teasing apart the differences between Vice Versa Press and Corandera Press? Like what? Sure. Uh, at what moment were you saying, like, I need to start a separate press while there's like another press happening? Yeah. So vice versa was more like subcultural and punk rock, right? Like mm -hmm. read, fight, fuck was the slogan. It was really the defining slogan in my opinion. And I did a lot of persings about dating, like I did even gangsters, but there's also always this like inclination of mine to make spiritual products. And so I experimented with some prayer candles through Vice Versa Press. I think the Student Debt Begone prayer candle was actually originally produced under Vice Versa Press. But there's this tension between like this rebellious, read, fight, fuck, like suck my dick pins with these like religious iconography or spiritual iconography of the prayer candle. It just clashed, you know, not that those things couldn't exist, but I just felt like there were two very different conversations happening under the same umbrella. So I decided to separate them and focus on branding for like the punk entity and then focus on branding for this like spiritual goods entity. And I'm also a Gemini. So I have, oh my God, so many personalities. Like it made sense. Like, okay, I'll just compartmentalize all of my interests, right? Um, so that that's why I split them. Yeah, it's funny because you described yourself as like being like fairly chaotic and needing structure, but it seems like you also have been very good about applying structure for yourself and like yeah. separating out all these interests, the, the different projects. I've been trying my best, but, but then, you know, when I talk to curators, they're always like, Oh, just make them all, you know, mix them all together. It's the same thing. You're the source, but I'm just like, it's too much. You know, it's just way too many influences here. And where, what were you doing in Chicago when Corandera Press started? 
And I was, I, mean, I was still working at Spudnik Press. Like, okay. But Chicago's community really influenced me in a huge, the Chicago's healer community and like the community is so incredible. Like I don't hear many other cities other than like New Orleans, of course, who have healer communities like Chicago's, like the Mexican American community and a lot of the folks that I was involved with in both the zine communities and healer communities, just having so much rich dialogue about self-care, self-love, like herbal healing, queer community. This was all happening like in Pilsen on the South side. And I was very, very privileged to be a part of those communities and to like table alongside them, to be in conversation with them. Um, that culminated in like really pushing Curandera Press forward without, Curandera Press couldn't have existed anywhere, but Chicago, even though like the practices that I was really um, interested in were like from South Texas, from where I'm from. But I really feel like as a publishing entity, Curandera Press wouldn't have existed anywhere else but Chicago. Yeah, so you were like, really involved in the, in the healer community in Chicago? I mean, I wasn't a healer, but I definitely got limpias, got cleansings, you know, like hung out. It, and, they're, and they're still like doing incredible things in that city. I'm just like, yeah, it was there. It's there and it will continue to be there. It's also pretty amazing to have, uh, to be able to recognize like the geographic spaces where these places could only have emerge from, or these projects can only have emerged from, which is, I think, another example of you, like, really being present in your, in your spaces. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the past two years, like COVID years, I really, like, gotten out of being present, but, but yeah, absolutely. Very site-specific entities, for sure. And I feel like Vice versa Press was definitely more transient, um, because it existed in so many cities, like from Baltimore to St. Louis to Corpus Christi to Chicago. Um, Going to the press was very Chicago centric. Yeah. And did Going to press start like before or after you started grad school? Before. Okay. Before. Um, and where did you go to grad school? <laughs> I went to grad school at Columbia College, Chicago. Um, it was, you know, it was a great experience. Um, but it is very difficult to run a business while undertaking a master's degree. So Good on Data Press definitely started to not disintegrate, but to sort of be put on the back burner while I was in grad school. It's just really hard to run a business. Yeah, I feel like we mentioned this a little bit last time too, but uh, you have a wonderful way of talking about being an entrepreneur and running these presses as businesses and like needing to treat or like work with your art practice as a business in order to survive. And I wonder how that, uh, like when you brought that to the MFA program, like what was, what were the conversations like with your peers, with your faculty? Uh, I don't know how much that gets like really spoken about in grad school, even though it should be all the time spoken about. I think that's why the experience of Columbia was so good is that this was the first time that I'd experienced being able to talk about business and sustainability, like financially as an artist in the academic space. 
like an undergrad, it was totally taboo to talk about like, okay, how am I going to make money off of this? How am I going to survive? How am I going to pay my bills? It just wasn't, people weren't doing this. And this was a mica, right? Mike's a fairly conceptual school. Yeah. So the thought of like, selling work was so anti-white cube, you know, there, it just, it, it didn't happen, you know? Um, and Columbia had a really good arts management and arts business program. And so I was able to tap into that. I was able to take classes in the fashion department as well. So all this culminated in this really like broadening my idea of what entrepreneurship is. It really helped me hone my like personal discourse on like what being an artist entrepreneur is and how that's a part of my creative practice. It's not just how I make money. It's, it is a part of my creative practice because it is a part of who I am. It's part of my familial upbringing too. And so I, again, one of the things I do find really fascinating about some of our discussions and like picking up your history over like the various like events or panel discussions that we've done is also you growing up in Corpus Christi, like in family businesses and around family businesses and like seeing that like uh, hustle and almost like internalizing that, like that becomes part of your process, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And the more people I talk to about this, like, the more like it sort of clicks to so like, oh yeah, you know, it's a part of my family too. And we thought you and I talked about this. You grew up in a family business. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about how like special it is to work alongside like one's family. It can suck sometimes for sure, but like, it's so cool. Like to work with my family to like be hardworking near my family and them respecting me as a worker. Like I don't, yeah. I feel like my family does respect me and they respect my work ethic and, and that that means a lot to me you know and I respect them like an Emma you know grew up in Corpus Christi but mostly grew up along I mean, my, my parents were very working class um so they worked a lot but mom would do like Avon on the weekends Melaleuca like whatever uh multi-level marketing scheme I think we did it even pyramid schemes man that was the shit back in the day <laughs> if we could have just gotten in on it early we would have been like, yeah we or gone to jail. I don't know. Um, but everything, Tupperware, we did it all. Like we sold it all, magazines, you know, like it was so cool and I really enjoyed it. You know, um, I really like on Saturdays, I would bag up the orders, put the samples in, we would deliver it. But I revisited Avon when I was in grad school, actually, um, being an Avon lady. And I actually feel like it hurt my credibility as a salesperson, like people were really skeptical of Avon and I get it because it's like a multi-level marketing scheme and it can really take a turn for the worse if you've got like an addiction for spending. Um, so that was, I'll talk, I don't know, I could go into that later, but uh, but yes, family businesses, like my auntie owns a print shop. Um, my grandfather uh, ran a pottery import business from the border. Um, oh. There's just a lot. Uh, just a lot of small business history and experience in my family. So my cousins identify as hustlers. I don't necessarily identify as a hustler, but as an entrepreneur for sure. Um, were any of your early zines made in your, your aunt's shop? No. Uh, no, they were made at Kinko's because it was like, I was talking about like dating gangsters. My auntie, my Aunt Marion would never have approved of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, she'd been like, no, 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 this is the devil's work. And I've been like, okay. <laughs> Still thinks I'm doing the devil's work, but I love her. I don't care. I love her. Um, 
But do you like to something you said earlier, like the idea of working with your family and these family businesses and the amount of respect that you garner for each other in those spaces? Because sometimes that work is so hard. You know, when yeah. you like you really see your family at uh at times like at their wits end in ways that is, I feel like really vulnerable for them. And you're just like in this space with them. Yeah. Yeah, but also like it's just yeah, seeing their vulnerabilities and then like having a copy edit, right? And like fix everyone's spelling is really funny. Um but it is also very fun too. Like I don't mean to just be like, it's all hard work. Like uh, I had some like really amazing times uh working with my cousins and my dad and my uncles. Working with cousins has to be hands out the funnest thing in the world. Like yeah. how can you not be in goofball with someone you've known since birth? Like it's <laughs> like, like cousins are tough ass, like big ass dudes, right? And I feel like the only time that I see them now as adults as goofballs is when we're working together, when we're at our wits ends, we're tired and we're just like, fuck it. You know, we're dancing or whatever. It is so yeah. much fun. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, a very unique environment. And I feel like, uh, I know, I know maybe just speaking personally, there's like some aspects of that that I do think about like emulating in some ways or like an attitude to like, we're all in this together doing this like funny thing that I, I do want to try to hold on to. And I don't know if, if you do as well. Of course I do. Are you kidding me? Like, that's when I know I've met someone who I want in my life for a long time, as far as friends goes. Like, can we be silly and goofy and not give a shit and just like work together? When I have those experiences, I know it's real, you know? Yeah, that's like the indication that this is a person I want in my life forever and ever. I don't want to be, you know, like, is we can work and be, we can do hard work and be goofy as, as heck together. Yeah. Yeah. If you can figure out the formula on how to emulate that, please let me know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like at some point we need to just have a residency with you at George Mason. So me, you and Jennifer can all just be working on something together. Oh my gosh. I in that capacity. <laughs> we don't really get stuff done though at George Mason. I mean, like we're having a good time, but things happen. <laughs> yeah <laughs> things like good and bad things yeah. <laughs> okay noted jennifer noted i'm like <laughs> can i be with you for the rest of your life i'm fine and goofy too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i can get down <laughs> yeah let's say jennifer you also work with your family quite a bit yeah i mean it's not really kind of uh, i mean it's a different type of entrepreneur level like I mean, just because like we work together, but I, I kind of like drag them into my things. I'm more, I mean, like in my like my personal professional career, I've kind of like focused a lot into like the nonprofit sector, and so a lot of it really is like, I mean, you're passionate about what you're doing, and you're passionate about who you're working for, right? And so it's like something that kind of it goes along with not, like small businesses. It's about the product, but it's also about the people that provide that product, right? It's something that you see a lot in a lot, especially with self-publishing. And so on. It's about like these connections that you're actually making, like one on one, right? Yeah. Or just being goofballs all over the place. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks for bringing up the nonprofit. Um, my mom grew up, she still works for nonprofits, right? So I grew up in the office too. Like I was in her office all the time because she was at work all the time because she worked for a freaking nonprofit. That was never. Mm -hmm. Nope. Uh, but it is very much about the people. She worked for like, 
not only Chamber of Commerces, but like adult daycare centers and just being around so many groups of people that she worked with really, really shaped me, really, really shaped me. And I, you had mentioned like Corpus Christi and the Corandero tradition and the healing tradition, like that being your, like a locus for all that for you as well. Like as a young child, surrounded by this as you were growing up. Yes, yes. I mean, I still feel like the conversation around curanderismo and my family is a bit taboo, right? Like my family's not evangelical, but they're a little conservative um, when it comes to like cultural practices around healing, around well-being. That conversation, it's not something we have as family together. It's something we have like um, but I, you know, I, I grew up with some babysitters as well with Mariana Don Perez, and they were like puro tejanos. They were from South Texas, and my nana—that's what I would call her. She, her mother was a curandera, and so a lot of the practices that she grew up with, that she still—she so, went. She was the first person to take me to Botanica. You know, like she was the first person uh-huh. that took me to her spiritual storefront. And I don't think she expected it to impact me as heavily as it did, but it did. I mean, I was just always so fascinated by these storefronts and um, and everything I picked up on just very, I just picked up on, you know, like all the, the cleanses that grandma would do, all the, the small rituals, all the visitations that Nana would do at the Botanica, like I was just very aware, you know? And yeah. I think that the, like everyone that I was around, my elders didn't realize that I was paying attention that, you know, that strongly, but I was, I was just like, I think I'm just that sort of hyper alert for better, or for worse um, person, you know, just always making connections in some way. And was this something that you would say would like, was always part of your art practice or at some point did you like come back to it and like consciously uh, kind of like merge the two? It's been there. It's been there. So my family did not pass down many cultural traditions. Yeah. So I go to the libraries when I was like 10, 8, 9, 10. I would go to the libraries and search like Mexican folk art. Search like, I don't know the terms that I would use when I was 8, 9, or 10 in the library. But I would search all these cultural practices that I wasn't learning via my family or my academic institutions this time. Like Corpus Christi is an assimilationist community. You know, it's like the more we integrate ourselves into the majority, the easier life will be, right? I can't blame anyone for that. I can't not blame my family for like assimilating to to not embrace a lot of the culture and a lot of the traditions that were passed down, right? Yeah. I had to go to the library to like form this identity around what being mixed Mexican-American was. Um, and, and books again appear in my, like in my practice, in my research methods, like books are where I found the information that I like deeply wanted as a child to like forming my identity. Yeah, and that's that's fascinating having that library space and like having to use these search terms to really learn more about uh, more about you, more about your background. Yeah, it's it's totally weird, but La Ratama Library in Corpus Christi, like, place is heaven to me still. 
And like the great thing about local libraries is that they hold a lot of local history. I was really yeah. able to, you know, I, I don't know if any of those, yeah, some of those books are very special. And you still have family in Corpus Christi? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The majority of my family who I grew up with still lives in Corpus and I visit from time to time. Great. So you can still go, or can, is that library still open? It is still open and I visit every time I'm there. That's amazing. And I kind of want to like uh, flash forward a little bit to a different city. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cause you've really been bouncing around a lot. Um, how, what years were you in Baltimore for? 2005 to 2010. Okay. And what brought you to Baltimore? Was, was that for undergrad? It was, it was. So I was like 17, 18, moved from Corpus Christi, which is like predominantly Mexican American, Anglo, go to Baltimore. And for me, Baltimore is a very black city, right? Yeah. But like, I grew up like idolizing black music you know black culture grew up idolizing black music but i did so going to baltimore i was very excited um but it was such a culture shock you know such a culture it took me a long time to get acquainted and there was a part of me that wanted to leave because the east coast is abrasive compared to the south yeah you know oh my god everyone was mean straight up mean um but i got my bearings and there i don't like the life lessons that I learned in Baltimore, like I learned more from the city than I did from the school. And I love the school, yeah. but that city, so many incredible life lessons that I could never like, I can't be grateful enough to Baltimore for being that for me. Like the first city that I lived in outside of Corpus was Baltimore. Oh my God. Yeah. That's such a huge shift. <laughs> yeah. It's like the ultimate ass whipping, but well needed. <laughs> What were you like? What, what, uh, when you were in Baltimore, when you were in school, was that when you started to get interested in making zines? Or was that part of just like being in the scene in the city? That is, it's not the first publication I made, right? Like, yeah, we had a computer at that house. And so when I was a kid, I would just be on the computer making fake newspapers. They meant nothing, but there would be like fake coupons. And stuff. Those weren't zines, though, right? I didn't know what a zine was. Yeah. Uh, but I did make my first zine in, in Baltimore while I was in school. Um, it just sort of clicked. You know, I had just been using office equipment for a long time. I finally learned how to print, learned the letterpress on the screen print while I was in Baltimore. So I really got my bearings on like how to make an image, how to reproduce an image. And so that led, and I already knew how to use copy machines. You know, I'd been in the office with mom. I was a copy machine queen. Um, so it all just sort of culminated and, and Baltimore being the place where I started printing. And so, I mean, I'm just kind of like floored this idea of being able to walk out there or to go out there, be part of this like beautiful printmaking program, learn all these printmaking processes and then apply them uh, so well in the projects afterwards. Um, and again, like being able to like pull forward your your Xerox work and like the like the the experience you had with the photocopier and compressing mm -hmm. it all down into like zines and publications. It was incredible, you know. And at that time, I feel like small press was really experiencing a resurgence. Like the New York Art Book Fair was mm -hmm. just like starting to gain traction as this 
cultural slash fashion slash like hip cool event you know like when I graduated in 2010 I'd say like 2008 2009 like letterpress was coming back around it was just yeah. this push and pull between going fully digital and being fully analog and so this conversation around the printed publication and like printed material DIY was just so hot like it was such a great time to be in this program such a great time to be on the east coast um and just also such like a really amazing time because it was like that 2008 so like between 2005 2009 especially before like printed matters art book fair uh like centralized everything and it seemed like there was all these like little scenes popping up or, like you'd make a zine and like it could really be like uh like a central like publication for people to look at in a specific city and didn't have to have any connection to the the art book fairs or maybe there were no art book fairs it was so or it cool. just like didn't seem like a, a the the fair circuit was not necessarily like an emphasis at all yeah yeah i mean zine fairs were still like zine like i've been going to zine yeah, fairs yeah. yeah but but yeah like that was such a special time like i just felt like everything was very alive the potential to really like be known as a maker as a creator was there for people yeah. who weren't gallery represented you know and that's what i always tell people is say i've gained more traction in my career through zines publications than i ever have through my formal work in galleries you know it really like the possibility of showing your work was there and people were seeing it people you know they were talking about it it was just like such a cool time like and not pre-internet but like pre-social media almost you know it was very very liminal or limited yeah. to what you know social media pre-social media and like right at that first wave of like you said people kind of like pendulum swinging back from the internet and being like all right yeah blogs are cool but also this like weird zine was just made by hand uh at like the office copier that someone commandeered for a little bit yeah it was, it was cool. So let's see if we can trace this. We have Corpus Christi, Baltimore, mm -hmm. Oklahoma, or Seattle in it. No, I went back to Corpus after I graduated. Okay. I need to get in touch with my roots, right? Yeah. And then I went to Austin for a little bit because I had a shitty box. And so I was like, fuck this. I'm going to go live with my friends in Austin. Lasted only six months in Austin because Austin sucks. Um, and then I got an internship at Island Press. I was doing residencies during this time too, so it's quite really cool. In New York, I was going to um, I don't know, going to Manhattan, Manhattan Graphic Center. Mm -hmm. um, moved to St. Louis to intern at Island Press. Uh, fell in love in St. Louis, so I stayed there for a year. Everyone says you fall in love in St. Louis. Well, I did. Um, went to Florida before that. My bad. Was in Boca Raton. That sucked, but it was a, it was a decent residency. Boca just sucks. Um, after St. Louis moved to Oklahoma and the Oklahoma moved to Chicago. Wow. Yeah, I was just writing down a list of everything. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Nice. That's quite the track. Lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a couple other projects I want to talk about as well. Because again, you've been super active and so many of your interests kind of like fall into these uh, kind of like well-defined practices or projects. And that is like the QTVC live work. 
And uh, how, how would you explain that? I call QTVC Live a DIY home shopping channel. Um, it's also known as your freaky home shopping channel. <laughs> it's like a spinoff of QVC or the Home Shoppers Network. Like it's everything that I grew up with on TV, like people trying to sell me bullshit. People are still selling bullshit, by the way. QVC salespeople are so cheesy and the products they sell suck. So I wanted this to like, I love sales, right? Like I just love, I love sales. I love making money. I love to make, like, it feels so good. And so it's fun to like work with other people. And, like, let's make money together. Like, let's sell this products. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your practice. Um, and it's still like centers around like artist entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship is class representation within the arts, which is something that I think, you know, needs to happen. We need to talk openly about like, Hey, yeah. like how, what does a sustainable career look like for folks who are not like, part of this grand lineage that is, you know, not something that's always, it's not really real, right? Like, I, and also I'm, I want to get that tattooed really real. I just thought about that today in class. You're in a <laughs> really real. Like what, what is this, re, what is, what is the reality of a sustainable career for artists who don't yeah. come from royalty, you know? Um, and so most of the vendors on QTBC are like, startups bootstrappers creatives um and we're having a good time like selling stuff we're doing studio visits it's 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 fun it's media focused right now i'm doing season two in collaboration with mocha cleveland wow um, it feels cool to be working with a museum that's awesome uh, yeah no it's like okay now where do i go now like what other institution do i want to keep working with institutions like what do i do what Working with institutional funding means that I can no longer sell panties on the show, right? Like, <laughs> what are we going to be like, are we going to, what, what are we going to sell in season three? It depends on who funds it. Yeah. So when you're working with like Mocha Cleveland for season two, are you working with artists that are specific to that area or is it like a nationwide group of people that you're working with? So for the first three episodes, we work with three Chicago-based artists. Mm -hmm. and last three episodes of the season we work with three cleveland-based artists <clears throat> so it's like a conversation between the two cities it's almost like a sister city program okay and how does that did that transition into covid tv or are those two separate entities totally separate entities okay. oh my i need to stop doing like i don't know how to archive all these projects Covid tv was a knee-jerk reaction to covid right like yeah. I was just like, okay, I've got QVC going. Like, I've got that going. What happens if I if I do a network? Like, we just program a whole series of, of, of shows for one day. And it was like artists, musicians, we had get curators. Like, wow. it, it was cool. It was a lot of work, but like, there were a lot of artists who weren't using Instagram as a video medium when COVID TV started. It was so cool to see how artists could use Instagram lives and experimental medium. It was so beautiful. Like there were people cutting, doing ASMR to cutting grass with scissors. You know, it was so, yeah. there was some great content on there and, and it wasn't archived very well. It was very ephemeral COVID TV, which is now over, but like, it was like having a TV channel for a day, you know, like a day once a week. It was awesome. Yeah, I remember the, the schedules that you'd be posting pop up. Yeah. Yeah, and you ended up yeah. working with a lot of people for that. Oh my God. Yeah. I just, you know, it's just so very ephemeral though, you know, 
like a lot of that content is gone. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Because we're just, we opened up this conversation uh, talking about like your archives are now being preserved and to have this project that is so ephemeral and so of its time. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure there's like video files held by Facebook somewhere, but not necessarily uh, on, on your devices. Yeah, I mean, Kobe TV is just a hard project to archive in general. Like, yeah. I, I mean, it hurts a little bit to think about everything that wasn't archived, but also like all the work that it takes is just like, oh my, it was like a one person project, you know, it's just like me trying to organize a bunch of people and people like doing this incredible work to produce content, not getting paid to produce this. It was, inc I don't know how it happened. I have no idea how it happened. Um, it deserves to be archived though. That's the thing that hurts is that I feel like the content was so incredible at this like pivotal point during like lockdown, it just happened. This was how people were being created. It was phenomenal and it deserves to be archived. And in some ways I feel like I failed it. You know, like I didn't, I just couldn't do it. I was fucking beat. I don't be so hard on yourself. I, <laughs> would, I don't think you should consider like anything you did with that project as in in the terms of failure at all uh having limitations due to the medium is not is not within your control and i would say that like what that does exemplify is some of the julia Arredondo magic of like really being present in a specific time and space and letting that like moment be what it is hey you rock thank you for making me thank you for picking me up out of that quick slump i appreciate yeah. it <laughs> Um, Julia, I am just looking at the time and it's been great to talk to you and to hear more about everything that you're doing and to catch up a little bit. But before I let you go, I want you, I want to hear a little bit more about this class you're taking while you're in Maine. Yeah, um, I'm taking a class called Spectres, Spirits, and Global Divinities. Oh, wow. Uh, oh my God, it's my first, well, it's not my first anthropology class about religion and spirituality and undergrad I took a bunch but I slept through them because I was such a fuck up all right <laughs> but it's an anthropological discourse on religion and uh we're breaking apart like what is the meaning of a symbol right now and I'm like mine is my mind's blown all the time it's incredible it's up my alley I'm about wow. to it's just, yeah, I'm freaking out. I'm going to get so many tattoos after this class because of like all these notes, you know, really real came out of this class. He was talking about like this anthropologist named Gear. That's how he would explain religions that it's, or symbols pertain to the really real. I'm like, what, what does that even fucking mean? I don't know. That's amazing. I want to take this class or I want to take the class that you give after you like process some things and your like uh, slides are given in the form of like tattoos that you're holding up. <laughs> It's going to be like tattoos slash music videos, right? Like it's all going to be like, everything's going to be translated into music videos because there's a music video for everything. Yeah. I, I, whenever you teach that, let me know and I will, I will travel for it. Thank you. I will let you know. I will probably be teaching by hologram at that point, but I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> Have Michael be your assistant in the background or in the <laughs> foreground. <Yeah. laughs> Cool. Well, again, Julia, thank you so much for 
spending time with us and letting us know what's going on. Um, for anyone listening at home, how can they keep up with you and, and see the work that you're doing presently? Thanks for the thanks for the mic. You can visit me at www.juliaarredondo.com. Uh, the website needs to be rehauled. Oh my God, that's such an existential crisis, but I can promise you the next iteration is going to be gorgeous. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at casual haiku, one word casual haiku. That's my personal feed. Um, I'm on Twitter too, as Abundance BD, BNB, Abundance BD. Um, but just email me. Um, you can find that on my website. It'd be great to hear from you. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Christopher. It's been so good talking to you twice. Um, yeah, Jennifer. I no, Jennifer, say, I'm, I'm very uh, happy that we were able to talk twice. And I'm even happier that Jennifer was able to join us this time. Same, same. Thanks, Jennifer. You brought so much to the conversation. So many things that I didn't think about. Let's get you down to Virginia and to George Mason. I've always wanted to go to Virginia. I haven't made it there. And I can do a holler. I love bluegrass. Like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know if Christopher can do a holler. I think I could move it into me, Christopher, but I think you made something work. Yeah, can you just like shrink down a little bit in the Zoom screen? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs>